welcome to the Epic Human Podcast, where we feature risk takers, high performers, and fascinating people from all walks of life. Uh, this is Joe Blair, your host, and thank you so much for listening today. We do appreciate it. Today's guest is Tom Masterson, founder and CEO of Unburden Care, a company that's uh, addressing a really painful issue for uh, unpaid family caregivers. Uh, and uh, and leveraging some technology that that uh, really helps uh, solve this problem in a way that hasn't previously been possible. Uh, I'm excited to pr- uh, share Tom with you. He's been a longtime friend and is a brilliant thinker, and uh, I think you're really going to enjoy the conversation we have today. So, without further ado, please allow me to introduce an epic human, Tom Masterson. All right, we are live with Tom Masterson, founder and CEO of Unburdened Care. Tom, thanks so much for being on the podcast today, man. Thanks, Joe. And, uh, you know, I'd be remiss if we didn't open. I think you haven't been on in a while, and you're a new dad since, uh, <laughs> I get again a new dad since we've you've been on the air. So congrats to you, my friend. Yeah, thanks for thanks for mentioning that. Yeah, it, ha- it has been a little bit of a hiatus here at the Epic Human Podcast, but um, for good reason, for good reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it was, it's, it's kind of crazy having a third baby, uh, especially a third baby boy in a family that's already kind of crazy, but we're, we're making it work. We're making it work. It's all, it's all worth it. And it's all, it's all good. But so thanks for mentioning that. Um, so just for context, uh, just to bring us back a little bit, uh, you and I met at at HBS. We were both, uh, uh, same year there. And, and I'm not sure if you remember this, but we actually met on the last day of school. We met on graduation day. Yeah. Um, and I had, you know, I think a, a month or so beforehand, I had made the decision to move to Vancouver and it was like three people, uh, separately said, you got to meet Tom Masterson. <laughs> he's, he's from Vancouver. He's going back. He loves Vancouver. He loves to talk about it. And, uh, and I finally tracked you down on graduation day in our caps and gowns and, uh, and we just hit it off right away. And then lo and behold, moved to Vancouver. Um, and, and we, we hung out quite a bit and, and one of my fondest memories um, of us hanging out together was when uh, you and your family invited my, me, my wife, and my young, you know, first baby. We're just brand new parents. Uh, you invited us to your Christmas Eve dinner, uh, and we didn't have any family in, t- in town. We didn't have any friends, you know, around at that point. So that was a very special uh, event for us uh, as a family, and we we remember it fondly. And, uh, and, and your family is just an amazing <laughs> group of people, and, uh, and we really appreciated that. Yeah, as if life wasn't overwhelming enough, you had to deal with the Masterson family on Christmas Eve. Jeez. <laughs> a, few co- a few cocktails were had and a few ex- expletives were uttered, I'm sure, but it was a fun night. Fun uh, night. It, was, it was a breath of fresh air, and, and, and you guys really made us feel like family, so we, we appreciated that. We were happy to have you, my friend. So, uh, so I think that... What's top of people's mind probably is uh, what is unburdened care and what is the genesis of it? I mean, I, people want to know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm going to preface this by saying I'm eventually going to change the name of this company because unburdened, <laughs> care, uh, unburdened care focuses on the experience of being a family caregiver, which uh, mm-hmm. for anybody in the audience who's not aware of this, a family caregiver is actually a fairly common thing uh, that people take on as a role in their lives. And it's all the at-home non-professional care that's given to somebody who's suffering from some kind of affliction, illness, or injury. 
Um, and that is provided by somebody typically very close to them. So it could be a spouse, it could be a parent, it could be a child of the person who's actually um, suffering or it's living with a condition even is sometimes a better way of putting it, especially in some um, more chronic cases. Uh, and these people end up uh, tacking on about an extra 20 hours of work per week. Uh, there are about 50 million of them across Canada and the US. It's a pretty big problem. But I started looking at this about five years ago, and you may not have even been aware because she wore it, she wore it pretty well. Um, but when I came home from business school, my grandfather's health had been in decline for some time. But my mom had taken on the role being the primary caregiver for my grandfather, along with her sister. And so my sister, uh, sorry, my aunt is a an executive in the fashion industry, very organized, very on point, very empathetic. Um, but really, in particular, the thing that makes this story intriguing is that my mom's a registered nurse. Right. She wasn't working. My dad's a doctor. So there were no resource, skill, or time constraints really <laughs> placed on my mom whatsoever. And she really struggled with it. Um, she handled all the stuff that you would expect her to handle very well, all the medical things. But um, it really got to me that somebody with every... Uh, resource and every advantage that she had would struggle with an issue like that. Um, and that was when I first became aware of this problem. If you grow up in a family like mine, where your parents are both medically inclined, every time there's a medical issue, it's just taken care of. You know, right. I had a couple concussions and stopped playing rugby when I was a kid. And if I had a separated shoulder, I saw the top shoulder guy in the city in like within a day. If I had a concussion or I had a Bell's palsy <clears throat> at one point when I was younger, like I saw the top neurologist in town, like within 30 minutes of symptoms coming on. But so what this tells you really, if you stop to zoom out on it a little bit, is that caregiving quickly becomes more of a social problem than it does a medical problem. Um, and that's the real crux of this issue. And I can talk about it more, but uh, what I'm really trying to do is improve that experience of being a family caregiver through technology. And the first effort for that is going to be a product that I'm calling Caroline. Um, but lots more to tell you about that. I'm not sure. I'll probably stop there and let you jump back in, Joe, if anything. Yeah. No, I, I think, and I think it's worth dwelling on the problem uh, for, for a little while because I think, yeah. I, I think this is probably something for folks, you know, our age and younger we're just starting to kind of see it um, mm -hmm. with our parents and, and with them taking care of their parents. Um, and I, I think it's, it's a problem that's gotten worse over the past couple decades yeah. and only is continuing to getting worse with, and ironically, it's because of better healthcare, right? So that's people right. are living longer and living with these, some of these conditions that are really quite horrible and, and, and degenerative and, um, you know, they, they attacked both the mind and the body. And one thing I, I never appreciated was just the, the wear and tear on the actual caregiver, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, every, though the focus is always on the patient, but the caregiver, the family member who's, who's doing on this, I mean, they can, they can suffer their own health consequences, whether it's physical or mental. I mean, you probably know much more about that. So yeah, I mean, you can imagine the scenarios when that happens. The first things to fall off, if you're putting in an extra unpaid 20 or 30 hours of labor per week, um, you try to hold on to your career, which most people are still in the midst of. My mom was fortunate not to be in the midst of her career, but most people are trying to hold on to that. So what are the things that fall off? 
chores, your romantic relationships and your social life, your fitness, that kind of stuff is what really falls away. And you're left with this obligation that you don't want to ship off. You don't want somebody else taking care of your wife or your kid or your father or something like that. You want to be doing it yourself. So you cling to that. But all the other stuff has to fall off by the wayside. And that's where a lot of the problem comes from. And your point about um, this being Uh, It sounds harsh, but a self-inflicted problem is true. Um, Medical care has improved so much. If you think about the earliest genesis of like hospitals, it was mostly surgical suites and triage. And that was kind of it. And then once we started to be able to cure things that people could get like get better from, that was great. But then we started to be able to treat things that people don't get better from. And that's where like the system was never really designed or conceived that way. And people are now we're now having to shift all this care back to the home. And one of the most um, striking examples that I've come across, and it's, you know, there'll be a few moments where we get into sort of, oh my, uh, oh my God, kind of moments on this podcast, unfortunately, because that's the world I live in, um, is comes from the world of Down syndrome. And uh, Down syndrome, um, I don't think I have to explain it too much in that it requires a lot from the parents in most cases to take care of a child who's diagnosed with Down syndrome. Um, But in about 1983, I found some stats on this the other day, so I think I've got the years right. Forgive me if I quote this incorrectly. People living with Down syndrome had a life expectancy of about 25 years in 1983. Uh, Fast forward to today, and the life expectancy is closer to 60, uh, which is a phenomenal achievement. And it's a lot of it is to do with we stopped institutionalizing these people. They're actually having better quality of life. They're being cared for in a humane way instead of sort of a system way. But... One of the biggest examples of this, one of the most striking examples, comes in Down syndrome. So uh, back in 1983, the expected life uh, of a person living with Down syndrome was about 25 years old. And um, that's sort of what the parents were signing up for when they were taking on that caregiving responsibility. And since then, we've expanded that expectancy to about 60 years. And... uh, that's fantastic. That's a triumph of medicine. That's a triumph of a new model of care that stops institutionalizing these people and does more to actually bring them back home and take care of them in a more humane, empathetic way. But the really unfair piece is that one of the proteins that's most implicated in dementia development is also found on chromosome 21, the triplicate chromosome in Down syndrome. So it's overexpressed in people living with Down syndrome. And by about age 40, Um, half of all people with Down syndrome develop early onset dementia. And so you can imagine being a parent taking care of a Down syndrome, uh, somebody with Down syndrome, and you think you've gotten them to this point where they can be somewhat independent for the first time in their lives. They're 40, they're, you know, washing dishes or something else. Um, But having an independent life, maybe even living on their own, and suddenly they're struck with a cognitive deterioration that is brutal. Um, And I don't think we have proper infrastructure in place in Canada or the U.S. or anywhere really globally to take care of something like that, because that's a that is just an immense um, twist to put on somebody who's been already caring for somebody for basically their entire life. Wow. I had I had no idea. Uh, And and my my mom is actually a uh, preschool special ed teacher. So I've I've been uh, exposed to kind of the front end of that experience, how painful it can be. But. Um, wow. I mean, imagine, imagine going through that experience and then there, there's this X factor on top of it um, that makes it even, even harder. I mean, the thing that just jumps out to me is that 
I mean, one one thing my dad always said is like, you know, are you when, when I was stressed out, he's like, is this a good problem or a bad problem? Right. <laughs> a good problem yeah. is is you've uh, you've got a big test coming up, right? Or, or you've got a lot of work to do. Bad problem is you just found out you have cancer, right? And yeah. and I think this this falls in the latter category in that. In both cases, whether it's an elder, elderly adult, or, or a, a you know a child with Down syndrome, in that it is a it is a long, painful, seemingly unending type of a problem with with no great answers, no mm-hmm. no no solutions on the horizon. Um, and but but I think your point earlier is that like people are up for it, right? People are dedicated. They love their family. They want to mm-hmm. do this. Um, mm-hmm. But there's no winning, right? There's there's kind of maintaining. Um, and there's, there's no way to like win the, win the game per, per se. It's, it's an ongoing battle. Um, and, and I think a lot of people, they do their best, but even if they're doing their best, I, uh, from my experience, there's this level of guilt that people feel. It's like, are mm-hmm. they doing enough? Are they, do they feel badly because of some of the feelings they're feeling like along the way? Um, how, how have you kind of experienced that in some of the folks you've, you've talked to? Yeah. So guilt is, um, one of the number one things that you have to worry about in this space when you think about the experience of being a caregiver and actually also about being a patient. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm making a really strong effort with this company to focus entirely on the caregiver because like you said, they're often forgotten in this space. They're kind of just uh, this altruistic figure that everybody assumes can take care of everything. So patients have survival guilt, caregivers have guilt about not doing enough and not doing enough isn't just restricted to doing enough for the patient. It's doing enough for their friends and their other family. And um, when I speak to, I've spoken a lot to caregivers in pediatric cancer. And the thing that they want the most help with, this is like striking to me, um, is that they feel they've got a pretty good grasp on all the medical needs of the kid with cancer. Um, what they're worried about is keeping life at home for the other kid normal. And it's a, that's what they feel guilty about is that because they rightfully so have to put all their attention on their kid with leukemia or some other kind of disease that's serious. And if we don't handle that one properly, we might actually lose that kid. We have to, it sounds awful, but in in many ways you have to just put the other kid second. Um, And they feel guilty about that. That is something where they feel sometimes like they have micro failures as parents. You know, this kid is meant to be able to just go to soccer practice after school and, you know, maybe they can't organize a ride for them or they, you know, they can't come to the game because the other kid has an infusion or some kind of surgery or something that day. And uh, this other kid, the one that has no disease, didn't do anything wrong, didn't do anything to deserve it. And so they're sitting there trying to sort through that. Um, And then the other piece, which plays directly into what I'm the problem I'm trying to key into is that there's a lot of guilt um, all around in just the moment of trying to get help. Um, People don't want to impose on their friends, especially the same friends over and over and over again. But they also don't just want to necessarily ask somebody. They're also afraid of having somebody say no. They're afraid even more of somebody saying no. They're afraid of them saying yes when they shouldn't be saying yes. Uh, like somebody has a really important engagement and they cancel it to come help you. That to a caregiver is devastating. They don't want you to be jeopardizing your life to help them out. They just would like some support if it's easy enough for you to give it. 
So it's a it's a really complex emotional framework that people are in. It's probably the most vulnerable moment in anybody's adult life. Um, and some caregivers are quite young. I mean, the another number that is wild is that about uh, 50 million caregivers in Canada and the U.S., about 10 million of them are considered millennials. Hmm. Yeah. Wow, so it's, that's it's, surprising. It's a, yeah, it's a shocking number because we always think about caregivers through the frame, and I did when I first started looking at this problem through the frame of dementia and Alzheimer's. That's the one where everybody's worried and it's like the population is expanding and the baby boomers are getting old and blah, blah, blah. And sure enough, it is the big one. But if you think about this phenomenon of increased survival that we were talking about, that's not just one end of the curve where the where the survival is increasing. It's increasing in pediatrics. People are surviving car accidents they wouldn't have survived previously. It's this entire, the entire curve is getting bigger. I think it's getting fatter at the elderly end of the curve. But, you know, kids that are surviving these things, they didn't survive 30 years ago. Um, Down syndrome was an easy one because of the striking gain, but how many kids actually survived like, a brain tumor when uh, in the in the 80s? Like none of right, them did really right. effectively. But nowadays, it's not uncommon for some kid to be born with a really severe heart defect or something, and the surgery is just oh, we scheduled the surgery for Tuesday, and you should be able to like just you know <laughs> you'll be okay, you'll you'll be a bit scarred and whatever, but you know you're gonna live. And this kid now grows up with, you know, some um, deficiencies of function in the heart or something. And it, it's a totally different scenario now that we have these kids surviving these things. So it's across the entire bell curve of, AVE, of demographics that we're seeing this increase. So it's not surprising um, that we see this. But also, sometimes millennials are caring for people with dementia. That's another piece that is um, uh, often overlooked is that sometimes the parents are in no condition to look after their parents. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes somebody our age has to step in because our parents aren't able to take care of our grandparents. That's right. another piece. Happens right. a lot. Wow. Wow. I, I really hadn't appreciated that. I mean, I, I think I hadn't appreciated the, the aspect of kind of our, our age group, both looking after their children and, and how that's, you know, similar trend is happening. And then, and then, wow, 10 million out of 50 million. That's incredible. Um, so I, I think, you know, I think we we concur that the problem is just extraordinarily painful um, and and pressing and growing. Uh, but how do you how do you envision taking that problem on? Right. So one of the things that I uh, have identified, and maybe it's a good time to sort of paint out what my career has looked like over the past five years or so, because um, <laughs> my career all the steps in my career don't make sense to be doing anything but what I'm doing right now, which is kind of hilarious. I don't think anybody <laughs> would, I don't think anybody in their right mind would hire me. I, I would probably be a pain in the ass to any boss and, uh, and I not like deep in one particular skill set. Um, but, uh, just the quick blow by blow, uh, is that after business school, I attempted a search fund, hated it, shut it down, but that was sort of a good first foray into doing my own thing being unsupervised, doing just everything by myself and hacking it together. And that was a really good experience, actually. Um, then for a year, I helped uh, our classmates, uh, Umang and Oshin, who had founded Handy. At the time, it was still HandyBook when I joined, actually. Uh, and it rebranded shortly thereafter to Handy. Um, and I helped them uh, with the launch of their Canadian markets, where we knocked out a couple competitors. And it was a good, uh, 
good uh, swift jab to the marketplace by taking Canada on in such strong fashion. Um, and that was where I learned how to to sort of navigate marketplaces. And that was a new thing for me. Additionally, it was the really the only time um, in my career that I'd been in a pure tech company and that I had been in a direct-to-consumer play. Those were the only two. That's, that's the only time in my career I've done those two things. So that was really important. Um, and then after Handy, I was the first employee at a genetic analysis uh, contract research organization. So we would actually do microbiome analysis, which is the type of science that uh, looks at the genetics of populations of microbes, bacteria, and fungus. It's the type of science that should be going into your yogurt and everything, like what, what bacterial populations are good for gut health or what kind of foods feed good bacterial populations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, except like we did everything. So our biggest client was a cosmetics company. We were looking at skin microbiome and what makes beautiful skin from a bacterial perspective. We also did salmon guts and all sorts of other things. Um, and so that was a great, like actually build a startup kind of experience because we got that thing to about a million and a half in sales, I think in my first two years when I was there and it's still going pretty strong. And then I got an opportunity to go to a firm in Toronto called Idea Couture, and it's an innovation and experience design firm. Um, the best way I could describe it for people on your podcast probably is that uh, I would think a lot of people that listen to your show would be familiar with IDEO, coming up with ideas for products for companies as a service. Idea Couture basically did the same, but with experiences and services. So I got to go as a life science, healthcare kind of strategy type person. And we got to do a couple projects that were looking at the experience of being a family caregiver. And that's where I actually started to build in some context to what that experience looks like. At first, I just sort of saw my mom doing it and I was kind of helpless. And I was sort of thinking, yeah, I, I wish I knew what to do, but I, I just sort of don't. And she seems to have all the basics covered. But, you know, like I said, she wasn't exactly herself when she was going through that experience. She sort of lost a lot of... Uh, uh, things in her life that she would have otherwise been doing. And, you know, I got to see a ton of that actually sort of firmed up with research through some PhD anthropologists that had conducted that on our behalf um, that, that were our employees at Idea Couture. And it was really quite fascinating to see what the, um, what the true uh, behavioral drivers were in that space and the contextual drivers. And one of the things that kept recurring, no matter what space we were looking at, um, was the phenomenon that people had a lot of trouble getting help from their friends and family. And that to me was very bizarre because I always thought, you know, um, you think of periods when people are mourning a death or something like that. And it's like lasagna, lasagna, lasagna. That's what happens. <laughs> people just bring it over. There's a casserole at your door every five seconds. And so I was thinking to myself, it's, it's weird that that doesn't happen um, in this extended period of difficulty in someone's life. And everybody just kept saying, there's always this ambiguous offer of help. Somebody just saying, Joe, what can I do? Joe, let me know how I can help. Joe, like, if, if I'm, I'm there for you, if you ever need it. If there's and, anything I can do, just yeah. let me know. <laughs> and, you, and you start to actually think about that. And there's a lot of stuff that makes that a really toxic moment in the caregiving experience. Um, one is that typically those all flood in at about the same time. So in nowadays, like the, the common way you would experience that is you, Joe, would get 40 text messages from your friends that all say the same bloody thing. And it actually adds to your stress when you're looking at that because you don't know how to respond to it. 
The other piece that really, in my opinion, drives this is that people sit there and they hear the word cancer and they think, oh, that means that, uh, you know, this loved one of Joe's is going to be puking their guts out. They're going to need infusions. They're going to be suffering all these side effects. They're going to lose weight and their hair. I say this like with no hair on my head, but they're going (laughs) to lose their hair. And they feel helpless. They feel confused. They don't know what to say. And that's the that's the real crux of it. They don't know what to say. They don't know what to do. They don't know when to do it. They don't know how to do it. Or at least they think they don't know how to do it. And so they offer something generic thinking that's the right thing to do. Joe will tell me. Joe will tell me if he needs help. Joe's too stressed out. Joe's sorting through the medical stuff. Joe's not going to tell you how you can help. Joe is going to just be handling it, handling it, handling it. And then 10 p.m. rolls around once Joe is finally done with his job and his other job, which is now taking care of this person that he loves, that either he's going to go to bed or he's going to open a bottle of wine and forget the day. And that's that's what the real caregiving experience looks like, is this frustrating, you know people are out there, you know people kind of want to help, but they don't get it. And um, it requires a lot of reframing of what the actual help that you could offer them is. But not only that, it requires better tools. Most caregivers that are trying to set up their own care networks like this, it's a Google Sheet, it's a Facebook group, it's some like really blunt tool. And if the tools that are out there are usually centered on the patient, it's like, how do we coordinate medical records? How do we coordinate their visits to the doctor? And frankly, that's not what the caregiver needs. <laughs> I, I don't think I, I it's my personal like conviction is that that's not what the caregiver needs. The caregiver's got that. That's fine. And frankly, that's the doctor's job. Um, so why should this person be handling all these records? So my personal belief is that solving the entire caregiving experience is impossible. And you don't have a person who's has the mental capacity to actually engage with you in something holistic. So solve one tiny piece of it and solve it very well. What I've chosen is this ability to get help from your friends and family, because I think that's an actionable piece of the problem. Makes sense. I mean, and I think in that in that moment, I mean, I've been in that moment uh, when when there's a death in the family and, and people show up and they say, "If there's anything I can do," and 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 yeah, I mean, it, it, to me, it's even awkward saying like, "Could you could you bake us a casserole?" Right? Yeah. Um, but. You're right that people do do that generally. They just know to do it, um, but oftentimes it's like, even when you're going through this this horrible experience, you're like, well, someone's got to go pick up the flowers, right? Or someone's got to go pick up the dry cleaning that's been there for like you know two mm-hmm. weeks. And it feels awkward to say when someone says, "If there's anything I do," it's like, yeah, great, go pick up my dry cleaning, like, and yeah. you know, and I need it like in the next thirty minutes. And it feels yeah. awkward, and you're already feeling all this guilt about what's what's going on and what you're not doing to the best of your ability. And then, do you want to like add to that guilt of of, of put pushing things on other people in in that direct moment? And most people just, even though they need the help, they'll just say they'll just pass on it and say, "Well, I'll take care of it." Yeah, and. And it's it's an interesting thing where um, now most of the, the 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 form of communication matters in that moment too. Yeah. Like if it's a face to face and this person's already come to see you, you can sort of navigate what might be easy for them to pick up and take on or whatever, and that's a little easier. They're right in front of you, so 
you know, I might not ask, you know, a, a seven, like a 65 year old friend of my mom to go pick up something heavy for me, but I might ask you to do it. Like right. if it was, you know, you, I got to go get, uh, I'm not sure like the, well, something heavy that we require for this. I'm not thinking clearly right now or to go mow my lawn or something. Like I'm not just going to ask them to do that. Um, <clears throat> that's actually, it's both better and worse in modern forms of communication with like text messages and stuff because um, it's harder to picture what that person's capabilities are. You're sort of throwing a request into a black hole and it's like, am I going to get left on red by this person to quote like uh, modern day like meme culture or whatever? Am I left on red? Is somebody just going to ignore me and ghost me and on this request? And it's it's an ambiguous, stressful thing to ask for some ask somebody for their help digitally um, in a way that it's less sort of gut wrenching because there's no immediate rejection, but there could be like a future moment of awkwardness where, you know, you never answered my text when I was in a bad spot. That's pretty bad. Um, and people don't like that. It's, it's a bad, it's tough to ask people for help and to, and for the people trying to offer it, it's hard too. They don't know where and when to plug in. They, they have no idea. Uh, so it's this, it's this brutally flawed moment in that, in that person, those that community's experience, really, that community around that person. Yeah, so, something else that jumped out at me um, when you were when you're talking earlier about uh, when when there's a, a sudden death in the family, mm-hmm. right? It's mm-hmm. um, it's an acute moment, right? Mm-hmm. Where there's a lot of stuff that needs to be done in a short period of time. So people ask, "Can I help?" They just show up with food, and, and if, if you ask them in that moment, um, they'll, they'll probably do it, right? But yeah. uh, the difference, I think. Uh, that, and you refer, you refer to this is when when you find out someone's parent is going through something really hard, right? Yeah. And, they're, and they're they're embarking on this journey. A lot mm-hmm. of that help offers for help probably happens like right up front. Yep. Right. And then I would imagine it kind of trails off over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the all the emotion and wanting to take it on and, and do it yourself is probably at its highest right at that early moment. And then yeah. when you need the help, those request those those offers aren't coming in. So yeah, it, it's a, it's a little bit different than the than the funeral aspect. Yeah, and if you've already ambiguously said no to somebody's offer, like even if it was a, a very random, unclear offer of support before, you already said it no a few times. Are you really going to go after they've offered it five times and say, hey, now I actually need it? That's a brutal thing too. Right. And there's also um, just. Uh, uh, a lack of equity and information at this point too, when you think about the ongoing nature of care. Um, One of the greatest lies in the world is that cancer ends with remission. Um, People just perceive this to be done. It's like, oh, well, you know, the cancer is gone. They're they're healthy now. No, not even close. That person has probably gone through surgery. They're still having after effects of all the chemotherapy they've been on. They're emotionally in a different spot. People who've had cancer and go into remission are not free of cancer. They're free of a tumor. That's all it is. Their tumor is gone. Their cancer, um, speaking more holistically, is still very much a part of them. Even if it's not an active growth scenario, cancer is still part of their lives. They're always in fear of it coming back is one big piece. So psychologically, that's traumatic to think like uh, it's like when you know you're being chased by somebody or something like to make it feel like a movie or something. Cancer is always lurking in the background for those people emotionally, and it's always lurking in the background physiologically, um, the remnants of those treatments. So 
in the same way that like everybody has all this support for you at the moment of diagnosis of dementia or even at the moment that a child is born with a birth birth defect or something the idea that the needs end at any point really is flawed um even even in uh, injuries concussions we've seen now we used to always think concussions were you know that's a two week problem or maybe a few month problem no not even close people grow like they grow old with that problem i've had a couple th- thankfully not too bad um but you know those could come back to haunt me at some point later in life uh and that's that's the reality is that people perceive the acute problem because it's readily apparent and obvious and it's addressable in a way that they can actually comprehend. But the chronic ongoing problems, they have a really tough time with. They have a really, really tough time with. And you mentioned that uh, some of the more uh, kind of type A type of caregivers, they will, they will leverage some tools like a Google Sheet and they'll, they'll be sure. super organized. I, I assume that's a pretty small percentage. Um, but what, what, is your, what is your thesis around how you can leverage technology in a more kind of direct way to address this problem. Right. So um, the thing that I've uh, been following, what's the best way to describe this? I think that the the core of the issue that I'm trying to get at is this moment of asking for help. And the things that you need to conquer in that moment are um, information transfer, the amount of time that it takes a caregiver to sort through all the people that they might ask for help to figure out what's that like, how, what's that algorithm, so to speak, of how do I figure out which person I'm going to ask and how do I have confidence that that person is likely to say yes. Um, and so you could imagine, quick aside, like if you have a 15 minute task, go pick up my dry cleaning. Are you going to spend four hours figuring that out? No, you're going to you're going to ask somebody else to do it. And then you finally need to uh, conquer the um, the awkwardness of that conversation. That's the other really you know fundamental piece. <clears throat> so the way that I'm approaching this um, depends really on technology that's only recently become. Um, we can only recently assign it to a particular purpose. Before it was just kind of like tech for tech's sake, and now it's becoming good enough that we can use it, and that's chatbots. And so what I'm building is a chatbot driven digital assistant that can manage all that solicitation and scheduling of people's help on behalf of the caregiver, Um, push that through existing communication channels, text message, maybe like a lightweight web app, that kind of thing. And uh, at least at the beginning and take all the awkwardness out of that conversation and take all the scale considerations out of that caregiver's thought process. So rather than this one caregiver calling up their friend, having an awkward conversation, This bot knows, okay, these 20 people are available. These 10 have said that they're willing to drive. Therefore, I'm going to ask these 10 people if anybody's willing to give this person a ride. And by doing that, you've effectively created uh, like a micro marketplace, which sort of drives back to my old experience with Handy is how do you build successful marketplaces? Um, So right now, like the, the crux of it is building the product, getting people that like can interact with it in the proper way. And then finding ways to ensure that you're going to build a strong marketplace. Um, and I'm, I'm sort of rambling on here a little bit, Joe, but like one of the big pieces that I learned, and I can tell you about my strategy on this later if you want, um, the key to getting uh, a successful marketplace is to have liquidity of supply. Um, and this is like that moment where 
if you think about taking Uber, for example, which is a marketplace uh, for rides, um, the worst experience of an Uber isn't a driver who has body odor or who swerves all over the place. It's when you can't get a car or you have like crazy surge pricing or, you know, it takes forever to get the car to you. That's the worst experience. People enter marketplaces on the assumption that they can get the service they want when they want it. Right. And if you can't offer that, then you're not building a very good marketplace. And so one of the keys to this is going to be making sure that we have enough supporters signing up into each of these little communities to actually service people in a meaningful way. Got it. Got it. What I love about this idea is it's, it, it's, it's, I think it removes a lot of that awkwardness because mm -hmm. I, I think I'm just thinking about myself, but if I were to ask someone one-on-one -on -one for a favor, it feels to me a little bit more awkward. The stakes are a little bit higher because if they say no, they're going to feel bad. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to feel bad for having asked. But if I ask a group of people in kind of a distanced kind of a way, whether it's and text, I think is just the way we communicate as yeah. uh, these days, uh, people of all ages. Um, and it's going out to a group and I feel, I, I think the stakes feel lower. Like I feel like may, almost everyone can say no, but if one person says yes, then that's, that's perfect. Um, and nobody has to feel bad in that situation. Correct. Um, so I, I think it's, and, and I think text is, is the right way to do it. Um, so how far along are you on your journey of, of kind of, uh, figuring out product market fit and, and, and kind of testing this out? Yeah, and quickly, just on what you just said, also not doing it in front of everybody else, like which is how a Facebook group would work. That's a real guilt driver. Of, you know, If you say no in front of a group of 40 other people, ugh. but if you say no in a one-on-one -on -one text conversation with a bot, you don't feel too badly about it. Um, in right. terms of product market fit, so we're building the first version of the product now, and uh, I'm building it to a fairly high fidelity because the cost of failure in this space is really high. If I was building a picture sharing app, I wouldn't care too much if it was failing on people uh, in the early days when I'm figuring it out kind of thing. But there's no way I'm going to push a product like this into a home where somebody's dealing with this, like the worst situation of their lives. That's just going to be buggy and terrible. So right now we're building that. We'll be testing it amongst a, a large group of, well, not a large group of people, but a small group of people to figure out small group of caregivers, which should in turn turn into a large group of people, um, given that you can get enough supporters, assuming that. Um, and we'll be doing that over the next few months is what the plan is. I just made my first hire, so I'm quite excited about that. Uh, and he's a, I can't believe I found this guy, frankly, but I can tell you, there's a funny story there actually that I should tell a little later when we have, uh, when we get off the product stuff. But one of the things that is driving how I'm thinking about the user fit, uh, which is going to be different than the sales channel, um, is this liquidity of supply question. And to me, that means that if you're going to get great liquidity of supply, you need an extremely compelling um, scenario that draws people into that community. And what I've been surprised, and, and I came into this looking at dementia, I've been surprised to learn and to figure out and sift through is I always assumed that it would be based on severity. Um, you know, you're putting in 40 hours a week with your mom, and that's just brutal. Like, she's got Alzheimer's like crazy, um, and that's really tough. But what I've come to realize is that it's actually based on how people perceive the fairness of your situation more so than it is the severity. So if you have a mother with Alzheimer's, in some ways there's a social contract in place that's understood 
that it's your job to take care of your mom. If she gets sick, that's your job. That's normal. In some ways, some dark way, you're lucky that she got to that age, and therefore you are not actually that hard done by. On the flip side, uh, if you wake up one morning and your kid is diagnosed with a rare bone cancer or uh, something to that effect, um, that is universally considered unfair. And especially with children who um, are perceived psychologically to have never done anything wrong, uh, and probably true, um, that is a far more compelling thing. People will drop everything they're doing. So I'm going to I think it's an ignored space further. I think people need to be focusing more on these caregiving situations and children because everybody assumes that it's Alzheimer's and dementia. But I intend to go into those spaces first uh, because I think that the supply liquidity will actually be stronger and create better experiences. It'll just be a more um, appropriate product for that space, in my opinion. So go that way with the product, introduce that assistant into I'm going to build it around the sort of um, persona of a parent caring for a kid with cancer. Uh, and that's that's generally how I'm thinking about the first key group of users. And then ideally expand into all sorts of other caregiving situations. And I think you can make uh, a strong claim on efficacy coming out of that situation and moving into other ones because it's a very it's a very emotionally traumatic moment in people's lives. Wow. Wow. What yeah. a I mean. What an inspiring mission. And if, if you're successful and you're bringing just even a modicum of peace or yeah. relief to a parent going through that, I mean, my my own experience, my, my, as you know, because you were there, uh, my first child was, was born premature, seven weeks premature. We were in the hospital system with him for four weeks and uh, it was devastating. It was by far the worst experience of my life and I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. Um, and th there were people, uh, you know, we were in a new country, a new, new city, didn't know a lot of people. Luckily, I knew you and a few others, but, um, and people did step up to help uh, here and there. But uh, it, I, I, I had that exact experience that you mentioned where it's like I was, I was just 100% focused on hospital medical stuff all day. And then mm -hmm. like 1130 at night, I would just open a bottle of wine, drink, you know, drink it. Not, not the whole bottle, but drink, drink a, a <laughs> if glass you did, or two. I, if, I wouldn't judge you if you did, though. That's yeah. a crazy experience. Yeah, and then, and, you know, and, like, watch, like, a YouTube video for, like, 15 minutes and then just pass out. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it's incredible. And, and I think your point earlier about um, the fidelity of the product is, like, super important. I mean, we live in this whole Silicon Valley world of – uh, fail fast. You, you got to put your product out there, and you got to be embarrassed of it, or else you've launched too late. But with a with with a product uh, and a customer of this type, you can't mess it up. I mean, you have yeah. to you have to deliver uh, the highest quality product um, at the very beginning. So the bar for your MVP is is going to be much higher. So and I and I can tell your uh, and what I hear you saying is you're taking that very seriously, and and I, I think that's the right approach. Yeah, and it's also um, not only that. It's a very, it's a very fickle, very fickle moment for people to figure out that one little piece. So, um, unless the experience is pristine, I, I talk about this in terms of um, the idea that right now we live in this kind of Amazon generation, where uh, you know, if I can't find it on Amazon, I don't buy it. If I don't get a calendar invite, I don't show up, and it's this the idea that 
help the help itself that people offer doesn't have to be made any easier. Like I don't need uh, somebody to make it easier for me to pick up groceries for my friend. What I need is the act of giving help to be made easier. And that's the entire crux of this issue. So I look at a company like GoFundMe, and I think GoFundMe has figured this thing out perfectly. All you do is you have a well-identified need. Somebody's having a major surgery or something like that. I'm anywhere in the world, and I click a few buttons, and I can make a contribution against that direct well-framed need. It is beautiful. It works really well. They have certain problems that have been discussed at length in, in recent times with uh, fraud and everything else. But really, at the core of it, it's addressing, it's allowing people to conceive the need and feel like they've made a difference in that person's life, and that's all people want. The problem is nobody's done that for time, and that's what I'm trying to do, is like, how do we actually make the process of giving time easier? And uh, and that's that's how this thing needs to feel. And if I can't get to a level of, of it feeling natural like Amazon or GoFundMe does, then this product just won't work. Like putting out an inferior product here does not work. It just, in my opinion, I have a firm belief on that. It just does not. So it has to be done properly up front. Um, is the point? Make, makes sense. Yeah. And, uh, and and it's super exciting vision and 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 this journey that you're on. Um, and and as I understand, you won an award recently uh, for yeah. for. <laughs> could you talk about that? Sure. Uh, so the Harvard Business School Club of Toronto, which largely functions as the Harvard Business School Club of Canada, really, uh, there isn't one in Vancouver, nor is there one in Montreal. So if there's going to be a Canadian HBS uh, event, it happens in Toronto most of the time. Um, they held a new venture showcase, uh, which was sort of a parallel type um, uh, competition to the Harvard uh, new venture competition, uh, except that they wanted to expand some of the eligibility criteria for people because uh, I think one of the main complaints is there are lots of companies where there was a really involved Harvard person, but they weren't necessarily the founder. There was some technical detail that they wanted to expand the eligibility. But yeah, I went out there and I I, I gave a pitch to um, some really fantastic judges. The most well-known of them uh, is a guy named Bruce Croxon, who founded Lava Life, who is a, it's a pretty well-known product. And he was on Dragon's Den, which is the Canadian version of Shark Tank. Uh, Dragon's Den actually preceded Shark Tank, is my understanding. It's sort of it <laughs> succeeded on CBC and our little government-owned uh, <laughs> TV channel up here, and it was widely adopted. I think is it on NBC? Is that where Shark Tank is? I can't remember. Could be. Um, but it's been a wild success, obviously. And like Kevin O'Leary is Canadian, Mr. Wonderful. We don't often lay claim to him. But anyway, <laughs> uh, he's on there. And so Bruce is one of the judges, a guy who founded a marketing company up in Canada named Andy Krupski was one. And then a fund manager named Justin Catalano was the other one. But I ended up winning both the judges choice and the fans, the audience choice for the story. Uh, for, sorry, for the for the company. And I think the big part of it was, you know, telling this story through the frame of um through the frame of uh, a, a metaphor that I had been working on with some, you know, help from some advisors and everything. But generally the idea of, um, of restoring a model of a village for taking care of somebody and the old phrase, it takes a village. Uh, I think that used to be really true, Like You would help people in that way. And it's not just being close knit. Like that's a very lazy way of describing it. I think it's that the, the patterns of life in an old village 
were just so markedly different. You would see a person going through an experience like this at church, down the road, from your front porch. You might even see them like with their out with the wheelchair or something like that. Um, and it was very easy to know what was going on in that person's life. Nowadays, you could have a fairly good friend of yours that lives in the same apartment building as you and not see them for three months. Uh, and if you did see them, it was on their Instagram feed and you're only seeing like the layer of which of their life, which they choose to share with you. So while technology has left us recently a lot more connected, it's left us far less intimate. I would argue less intimate than we've ever been as a culture uh, is right now. Um, and so <laughs> what this behooves us to do is that if we're going to restore the village mentality of care, we have to be able to bring people who have fallen off of this intimacy with this person who's going through this experience and bring them back to a place where they can actually feel more connected to that person on a day to day basis. And I think that's one of the big tricks is to like to get the village mentality back. Um, technology just hasn't been applied the right way. It's not that it can't do it like a text message could very easily keep you up to date every day on what's going on in this person's life. It's just nobody's doing it properly yet. I think it's just a new application of existing tech. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the big ironies of technology that as you as you aptly stated, uh, more connected, less intimate and I mean, you've, you've seen kind of rise in, in depression and, and suicide among young people, and it's, it's really um, uh, quite sad in, in the way it's, it's evolved. But I, I, I'm a believer, and, I, and it sounds like you are too, in that technology, if applied in the right manner, has the mm -hmm. ability to correct some of these things. And, uh, and this, this, I think, is a great example. And congrats, yeah. and congrats on the award. That's, that's huge. I, I know it's a very competitive event. And and uh, you know a good a good signal for for you that you're you know heading on the right track. I, I would love to. Uh, we've already covered a little bit about your background, <clears throat> but um, one of the things, uh, a big big part of our audience are are kind of younger people who are early in their careers or in school and they're still trying to figure out like what they want to do. And they look at someone like you and they say, "Wow, like this guy is starting his own company. He's going after a really important problem. How inspiring." Um, but I just wanted to zoom out a little bit, take us back to when you were younger. Mm -hmm. Like you said, you're, you come from a family of doctors. You're, you're, your dad's yeah. a, a, a prominent doctor in, in Vancouver, and, and your mom's mm -hmm. registered nurse. Um, did you ever feel that pressure to become a doctor and, and yourself? And and if so, like how did you how did you deal with that? And how did you find your way kind of early in your career? You know, it's funny. Like uh, in some ways, no, and in some ways completely felt the pressure to be a doctor. Um, not only is my dad a doctor, his dad was a doctor and his dad was a doctor. So it's running the family and uh, <laughs> a very funny thing. Uh, I don't think I developed the ability to think critically about this until a lot later in life, like uh, until the end of university, really, and even in my first job. But frankly, um, without any other uh, Mastersons besides my dad who were male in the family, I never in my entire life have known a Mr. Masterson. It's always been a Dr. Masterson or a Mrs. Masterson. And those are the only two I knew was a doctor and a Mrs. And um, to me, like hearing the, the, the name Mr. Masterson, it still doesn't sound right, which is bizarre because I've just <laughs> never known anybody but a Dr. Masterson. Um, so I grew up uh, thinking my entire life, you know, I, I was a 
pretty good student in high school. I usually took all the AP science classes and all that <clears> kind of thing. Um, <laughs> but my parents basically, um, they raised me with the idea that uh, I should just basically, the, the one lens I should view my life through was to make my parents proud, was basically the only thing they ever said. And I think that's more powerful than any stick as a parent is like, is the pride stick. There's like, it does all the work, of, it, it, it does all the work of the stick for you, but it feels like a carrot in a weird way. Um, so I think that's, uh, that was good. And then they, they invested in me and I'm very thankful that I, uh, went to a, a fantastic school with fantastic friends, uh, called St. George's in Vancouver. And, um, they espouse as a boys school. So that explains my awkwardness with women throughout most of my life is that I spent, uh, <laughs> second grade to 12th grade, just uh, alone with my buddies in school, but they, they espoused the biggest virtue there was to be well-rounded. Um, and so I never shied away from doing all sorts of stuff. So like my, my resume coming out of high school, so to speak was weird. Like I, uh, was an A student, mostly in sciences. Um, I had become very good at uh, pottery, like throwing, I was able to build like tables out of clay, like just spun on a wheel. Uh, I had been in the provincial honor band as a tuba player, believe it or not. Uh, I was the assistant captain of the rugby team. Um, And in my spare time, this is the big one that still is, I haven't done it in 10 years. And it's still the thing that like competes with Harvard on my resume for the most striking thing is that um, I was a competitive barbecue chef from the age of like 12 to about 24. And my cousin Ron and I actually won the Canadian national championship in 2004. And we were the first Canadians to ever win in the United States in 2002 at the Oregon State Open. What? So, yeah. <laughs> Did you not know that? I had no idea. That's crazy. Yeah. So <clears throat> it was this hilarious thing where, you know, I was never the top of my class in anything aside from like the barbecue. Um, I was like, I was a fat kid. So I only became very good at rugby. And like, by the time it was about grade 11, grade 12, like a junior and senior in high school kind of thing. Um, so I sort of bloomed late on a ton of things. Uh, and thinking was actually also one of them. So I went off to UBC, which is University of British Columbia, which uh, maybe some of your audience might not know the University of British Columbia, but it's actually a, a really great school. But I think it's usually in the top 20 globally for life sciences. Uh, massive school, uh, 65,000 students, uh, including grad students, huge campus, which you'll know where it is, Joe, on like the west uh, west tip of Vancouver. Yeah. Um, great school, huge school. But like I was going through that entire process at that school thinking to myself, med school, med school, med school, med school, med school, not even really stopping to think about it. And then toward the end, uh, I had a first time like stopped to think critically about my dad's life. And I thought, well, you know, I, I want to say for sure, my dad is fantastic. I'll tell you about my parents in a minute, but, um, he was not, he did not have full control over his schedule. Fair point. Like if you're going to get called to the ER to save somebody's life as he's a surgeon, yeah, you go. Um, but at the same time, that means you can never be fully confident. You can attend a rugby game, a band recital, all those types of things that you might want to do with your kids. And so I sort of started to think about this, like, how can I get a bit more autonomy in my life um, uh, than being an on-call surgeon? Um, 
And so I thought, well, maybe I'll be a dentist. And that should have been my first clue that I didn't actually want to be a clinician, that I would just pivot so easily off of medicine. <laughs> and so I took a job at a medical device company that sold a dental laser. It was their first product um, called PerioWave. And I thought that'll just look good on my on my resume. And uh, and about three months in, I was sitting there that, man, this is really fun. I'm analyzing data and doing all this kind of like business stuff, which I never knew anything about. Frankly, they were uh, like I had no idea about half of the realities of being in business. And, you know, that reflects in my like, lack of demands for salary and stock and all sorts of things that I didn't make when I was young. And now I know a lot better. Um, and so I decided to stay and. Uh, I'm getting a bit off of the early life story, but this is sort of how I got my start sure. uh, was a woman who had been running marketing across the country went on maternity leave and having been in this intern type position for three months or so, I just went to one of the VPs and I said, uh, do you know who's going to take that job? Because I would love to coordinate marketing across the country and just do that full time. And they were surprised. They thought I was going to go back to school and they said, sure, like this help saves us from recruiting and you know all the data already so just go ahead we'll give you a shot and take it on and so i said fantastic and then the next day after that uh carolyn cross who was my boss and later became a mentor and a huge figure in my life uh she walks into my office she's the ceo and she just sort of pauses and says so here you're gonna stay and i go yeah and she goes oh that's great would you ever consider trying sales and I said, I don't see why not. And she uh, she walked out kind of satisfied with that answer. And she fired two salespeople the next day and gave me their jobs as well. So within the span of a day and a half, I'd gone from being an intern to having three people's full time jobs. And that was my that was my next year and a half or so of that. And I did really well in it. Um, which may be more reflection on the quality of the salespeople than it was on me, frankly. Um, but uh, hopefully they don't listen to this podcast, but they weren't particularly. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I did very well. And she ended up being one of the people who wrote me a reference letter to business school and everything and been a very close friend of mine ever since. But um, yeah, so I'm going to stop there because I've been talking about all this stuff for far too long. But No, I um, love it. I love it, man. So so many gems in there. Um, yeah. Which one? I Tuba. <laughs> well, the the tuba, the pottery, the rugby. Um, next time, we, I, I can't believe I haven't uh, had you cook barbecue for me because. Uh, so next time we we meet in person, uh, we are going to make that happen, <laughs> no matter what. Um, and, and yeah, I, I love I love your point. Kind of, uh, you, you know, you're you're following or, or you're thinking about following a, a prescribed path and. And then you get some early signals that okay maybe maybe that path isn't for me, and then you you do some experimentation. Uh, and I'm I'm kind of uh, I'm I'm being <clears throat> being a little bit liberal with my interpretation here, but um, you're, you're you're getting the signals, you're experimenting, and then and then you get rewarded for that experimentation, and mm -hmm. and it's kind of a self uh, uh, it, it, it self reinforcing type of a thing. And and I had a similar experience when I first worked at a startup, which is. Uh, you know, I was expecting, you know, a very structured program and, and, and processes, and I just got thrown into sales. I got thrown into business development, uh, help, you know, go, go find some, 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 someone who wants to buy our product, go, go find someone who would be a good distribution partner. And I, I loved that. Like I, I was so attracted to that autonomy, to that freedom, to that, um, diversity of what I was doing. 
And I, I think you know, we, we share that, um, that excitement over, over that kind of thing. And, and I think just more broadly, uh, what, what we're trying to do here on the podcast is, is talk to people who have, who have kind of gone off of that, that main path and have found their own way. And I think you, you're a shining example of, of all the exciting things you can do once you, once you jump off that path. Um, I'd love to. I'd love to move over to kind of the quick fire round. Um, and you've already answered uh, some of my questions in terms of like, what do you do for fun, and you know, what's something uh, people don't know about you. And now I feel like I know you way better now, which is just one of the amazing aspects of of getting to do this with you. Um, what? Let's see. One thing would, what I would ask is, what do you believe that that maybe other people don't believe, or most people don't believe? Yeah. Uh... This sort of plays back into what you and I were talking about just a second ago. Um, <laughs> I'm going to swear a little bit on your podcast, so hopefully that's okay. Go for I think it. any I think anybody that claims they know what they're going to be in five years is full of shit or not very fun. It's one of the <laughs> two. Um, <laughs> and I can't imagine the idea of having a prescribed notion with all deference to friends in banking. Like, if you think your goal in five years is to be a VP in a corner office at Morgan Stanley or something like that. I, I just don't see a ton of growth potential there beyond in one really narrow silo. I think, um, I think that there's a lot to be said for building out more of a skill set that's based on flexibility and preparedness than there is to having one that's based on like extreme proficiency in one topic. Um, and that's that's my personal viewpoint. You can certainly make a fantastic living in a world like that. But um, I'd also want to know how many people we met a few that we were fortunate to meet who had probably a similar way of thinking about things. And then Bear Stearns collapsed around them. And then, you know, the ones that were able to have resiliency in that moment were probably the ones that were never thinking like the be all and end all was having the corner office at Bear Stearns. Um, right. Because I believe that that's sort of a model. Like one of the things that I, so anyway, I, I believe that um, I've trained myself to just live in ambiguity and to be comfortable with knowing that um, a choice I make now, so long as I execute on it well, is probably going to set up me set me up for something else that I'm going to enjoy. Because odds are, I've done it well and in a way that I like doing things that that will just set me up for the next moment where I like to do something. That's kind of my belief on that. I think that setting a five-year goal is stupid. I think that setting like five-year ambitions and five-year directions is totally smart. Um, but to actually pretend that you know what's going to happen is ridiculous. Uh, I got, I was fortunate at Idea Couture. Also, we had a discipline there that was called strategic foresight. And strategic foresight is sort of more of a business orientation to this same thing, which uh, is based on some U.S. military techniques. And U.S. military techniques are, you know, there's a lot about rehearsal and the plan, but the, I think one of the biggest things and what we've learned is that the thing that determines the success, like the high success rate of those operations is that they're prepared for every possible contingency. So it's a model of preparation um, for, for deviation from the plan. That's actually what makes them so effective. Uh, and so in foresight, they think about these things through that they've got 
five groups of things that can change around you throughout time. Uh, it's like a steep V model. It's called as social changes, technological changes, environmental changes, actually like the environment, like clouds and rain and that kind of thing. Um, economic changes, political changes, and shifts in values and how people live life. And what they try to do is project as far out into the future, like what does the world look like if values change so significantly or politics changes so significantly? I doubt that um, 15 years ago people were preparing for uh, Donald Trump presidency, for example. But the 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 model of this type of study is you force yourself to think about things like that. Like what happens if um, from my old genetics point of view, what if we get to a point where genetic sequencing becomes so cheap and accessible that everybody can have their genome done, whatever? Well, we should examine the possibilities there from the point of view of will all that genetic information be owned by the individual or by the state? Mm-hmm. Those are two very different scenarios that people have to plan for. Um, and then we have to think about um What's the economic reality? Is that stuff for sale or is it definitively not for sale? And these are the things that's like, unless you start to like expand your viewpoint of your own future and be comfortable with the idea that it could go through no harm, no act of your own, like Bear Stearns, it could just go completely sideways on you. I think you're better off thinking about the world that way than you are about thinking about I want to have the VP title of this particular thing, blah, 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 and X, Y, Z, I'm going to have this house, this thing, this wife, whatever. I think there's a massive flaw in doing that. It sets you up for severe disappointment, um, and it limits your openness to considering new opportunities and new things. That, uh, so I believe that pretty strongly. Um, I know a lot of people that have made great successes of themselves. I think they're kind of lucky, and I think they're kind of boring, um, huh. the ones that have actually done that and, and been successful at it. Yeah, yeah, I love the quote, like, life is either a great adventure or nothing at all. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I, I'm quite fond of this idea of uh, living in ambiguity and being resilient, flexible, prepared, as some of the words you used. Um, it, it reminded me of a, a good friend of mine yeah, here in San Francisco named Julia, and she was talking, we were talking about our kids and, and how we want to educate them. Um, and. And, and her, her viewpoint is that the world is, is changing so fast. Like, I don't want my child to train for a career. I want, I want her to train uh, her, her mind and her skills and her, her education such that she can change careers every five years. Like, let's, yeah. let's prepare for that reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I think there's, there's a few among us who, who have done that. Um, but I think, you know, it's a small percentage today. And it's going to be a much larger percentage going forward. Yeah, I think interesting. Like, I wonder if you asked her, what would she say? Would she want her kids to go to university? I'm guessing yes. But do you have a sense of what she'd want them to study to prepare for that kind of thing? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'll have to ask her. I'll have to bring her on the podcast so we could we could talk about it. But uh, yeah, that's like, pretty, I, yeah. I I studied genetics in business. If I had to do it for the next thirty years, I would study psychology or some kind of social science right to understand how people tick we're gonna have a lot of the ability like there's so much emphasis placed on stem with good reason like there we're building things we're in this technological era of building but the next step beyond technology is what i'm working on it's how do you apply that technology in a way that actually suits the needs of people mm-hmm. and and that's going to be the thing that's in high demand because we've sunk all of our <laughs> this sounds very pessimistic sunk all of our best minds into 
um, tech. And, you know, I think it's a, a, a crime that we're putting the best minds of our generation on improving click through rates on websites. Like, I just can't understand it uh, from a social point of view that we're that we're not solving better problems. Um, uh, but, you know, that's that's my point of view. I, I think that a social science background in the coming years is going to be extraordinarily powerful. Um, and you already see it reflected in Fortune 500 CEOs. Like those those people typically have, you know, a philosophy background or something like that. And then right. they did an MBA or something, but they learned people first. And I think that's a crucial learning. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm not fortunate. I, I, my mom is a high EQ type person and I learned to learn people from her. Uh, and I got maybe a sliver of my dad's rocket intelligence, but like <laughs> she is the type of, you've met her. She can walk in any room and be best friends with anybody in two seconds. It doesn't take her anything. Um, she just gets it. And, uh, you know, I think that's going to be a big skill, but also just understanding behavior will be a big one too. Uh, absolutely. I have a colleague here who's, uh, you know, talking to his daughters about, Hey, maybe, maybe we need, we're going to need people who not only understand robotics, like going forward in automation, but what about the ethics of robotics and automation, mm. right? And I think that plays to, to what you're saying. Um, one, one last question on the quick fire uh, is just, you know, what is one quote uh, that's that's meaningful to you uh, that's that you think about often or, or you want other people to hear? Yeah, and apologies, the quick fire round hasn't been super quick. I keep talking. <laughs> that's okay. Uh, this is how it's supposed to be. <laughs> I think the, uh, the forever quotable uh, Winston Churchill always comes into my mind. And one of the ones he said, I think I'm going to get it right. Um, now is not the end. Now is not even the beginning of the end, but it might be the end of the beginning. No, sorry, something like that. Now is not the end. Now is not even the beginning of the end, but it might be the end of the beginning. I think that's what it was. Mm. And it was just sort of a commentary on how people always perceive the notion of finality and how it's actually never correct. <laughs> it's like mm. when you think something's over, it's never actually over. It never is actually over. It's kind of bizarre. Um, and I always love that because it's uh, – the idea that I, I just, he's a quotable guy, but that, that one always sticks with me. Um, for as long as I can remember, I've liked that one. Uh, unfortunately, most of the other quotes that stick in my head are from movies like Zoolander and Dumb and Dumber. So I, uh, <laughs> me too. I, I won't, yeah, I won't, uh, I won't. But, uh, but, you. but the, for, for that, for that one, what, how do you apply that to your life? Like, how is that, um, manifest in, in kind of your personal philosophy? I think that it's true in relationships as it's true in business. It's just like a model of tenacity um, that isn't isn't ridiculous. Like I think that there there are some people that I meet and I just I get, I get annoyed by them because they're so tenacious. And sometimes it's like the right model for what they want to do. Um, but I just sort of have a bit of a uh, a, a, an intrinsic belief that if I, I believe something is the right way to do it, I'm going to find a way to do it eventually. Um, and it might not be worth pissing everybody else off around me to get it done right now, but it will be worth getting done at some point. Um, so, you know, this is the type of mentality that I take in. Like, I, I believe pretty firmly that the idea I'm working on at this company is big and worth doing and that I will and it will work. 
But if it doesn't, there will be another frontier to conquer in caregiving um, because this problem is not going away. It's getting bigger. Right. Um, and so there's I, – I just – I think that failure is a, is a beautiful thing once in a while. It's hopefully not the model, but uh, – to, to learn from it and realize that you're still not even close to the end of the journey that you're on. Mm. I think that's kind of the cool piece of, of that quote. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, I, I get you. It's like kind of like taking the long view of situations and, right. and keeping things in perspective. And, and it's, it's harder at these, uh, I don't know, I feel it's harder for me these days with like the quick, you know, instant gratification mm-hmm. nature of things. And um, like you said, the Amazon generation is like, oh, I want something. Let's, let's have it now. Um, yeah. as opposed to, okay, you know, whether you're building a business or raising children or, or kind of building a new career or, or interest or project, it's about, okay, this is going to take time, but if I keep kind of chipping away at it, it's, it's going to become something beautiful and worthwhile. And, uh, I think, I think we as a kind of as a generation, I think need to really, uh, strengthen our, our ability to be patient and, and thoughtful kind of for the long term. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure you're uh, in the midst of teaching that to your young boys, mm-hmm. I would imagine. Are they, are they rather patient or are they kind of impatient with you these oh, days? Oh, boy. I mean, they're, you know, young kids are built to be impatient, um, but they are, we're, we're working on it. I, the harder the harder part is, is being, you know, managing myself and, and uh, I feel like that's always harder. Um, so, yeah. so, so, Tom, uh, how can people find you? How can people follow you or, or Unburden Care? Um, if, if, you've, if you've gathered some new friends or fans uh, who want to root you on on your journey, how do, they, how do they do that? Yeah, I mean, at the moment, people can always connect with me on LinkedIn. Just make sure you attach a message. Oh, I have to tell that story, by the way. But um, the, other piece, the, only other, the only other place right now that's set up well for like social is uh, – the, right now we're calling the digital assistant for unburdened care. Her name is Caroline, uh, tentatively. And I, like I said, there will be some rebranding efforts in the near future. I'm imagining Caroline will stay Caroline. Hmm. Um, just kind of a fun pun on care, but maybe not. Uh, <laughs> but the, the handle on Instagram is caroline.assistant. But I have, I, I've got to tell that story because I think it's hilarious. Please uh, do. If you have time. Yeah, of course. Is, uh, as I was searching out as you know, I'm not technical. Genetics, uh, business background, I can't code. But one of the cool things now is that the platforms for making uh, bots have been platformized to the point where uh, it's kind of like doing a WordPress website in 2002. If you know where the right button is, you can launch a site. If you know where the right buttons are in these chatbots, you can build a chatbot. Wow. I taught myself to build chatbots. I can build a chatbot in a day if you want one. Like, it's not a big hmm. deal anymore. But getting good at it is hard. And uh, I chose a platform, and so I think to myself, this platform is great because it's extensible. You can put it on whatever channel you want. It goes on Messenger, Slack, text, whatever. So I think I need to find somebody who can build the back end on this chatbot um, or maybe knows a lot about it, If ideally for the, for the product lead, the first product lead for this company. And so I go on LinkedIn, and I type the name of the bot in, and this list comes up. And the first result is somebody who's in Burnaby, which is a suburb of Vancouver. It's just a little mm. ways outside of town, maybe a 20-minute drive. Um, and then everything else is the typical the San Francisco, New York, Mumbai, like all these things where all these people are. 
And so I think to myself, LinkedIn is just trying to, you know, they're giving me this like algorithm based, give the, give you the nearby guy first. And then like, here are all the real ones. So I look at all the other ones. Nothing really catches my eye. I go back and see this guy and I'm like, oh, that's kind of interesting. And he works building chatbots for a large company. And, uh, and I'm like, oh, it's kind of interesting. Um, but I hate it. I hate it when people send me just a blind LinkedIn request. I hate it so much. And so I have this weird mental hang up, which, you know, makes the rest of this story kind of funny. And I'm currently as a founder too cheap to pay for the LinkedIn premium. So I decide that I'm going to go and find this guy somewhere else. And in true millennial fashion, I end up sliding into his DMs on Instagram. <laughs> and, I, and I suggest I tell him what I'm up to and I suggest we go out for a beer we have a good laugh he says are you sure you're not a Russian chatbot and I say no I'm totally legit and we go and have a beer and this guy he's fantastic I mean I'm asking him questions because I'm not sure whether he's really sort of a side player on a big company's chatbot team or whether he's the one who's tried to do this and has been so constrained by the corporation that he can't actually build what he wants to do. So I asked him if, if he's done anything with this bot anywhere else. And he says, oh yeah, because, um, because of my discount at this company, my, uh, in my one bedroom apartment, I have 15 Google home speakers. So he has perfect audio and microphone coverage on his entire apartment. Cause he's got 15 Google homes. Um, and he's built himself his own assistant that he refers to like his Jarvis from Iron Man. And he just controls his life from his apartment. He just does this stuff. So I'm sitting here thinking to myself, I can't believe it. I found the guy, like the guy that I wanted. And he's here in Vancouver, which is completely insane because the, the guy you want is never in your hometown. He's always somewhere else. Right. Um, and so I'm thrilled. I mean, this guy, you know, he just signed his papers today. So he's, he's on board and uh, sorry, yesterday. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're going to start building this thing pretty soon. He's got a few weeks of notice that he has to give, but we're, uh, we're on track and I've got sort of the expert, you know, this guy is renowned for this type of stuff. So I'm, I'm pretty thrilled and he, you know, it's not that surprising. He's, uh, the, the vision is easy to latch on to. Um, it's sort of something that people get behind. We're also doing a cool thing, um, through an organization in Canada called the Upside Foundation, which I would love to plug. Uh, they, um, they recognize that entrepreneurs are uh, philanthropic, but don't have cash. And, uh, so they've standardized a way. And I think there's like sort of akin to the Salesforce one, one, one model where you can pledge a portion of your company through the upside foundation to certain charities that you want to give. So we're going to take a percentage point of the company and, and devote it to a charity, um, likely a children's hospital or two in Canada, but we haven't actually finalized that yet. Probably the local one in Vancouver, BC Children's, and the one in Toronto, Sick Kids. Um, and uh, yeah, and we're just we're really excited to try to add one more layer of social impact to this venture because it's uh, already in the right lane for me. And the idea that I can support a charity like that is really meaningful. It's something I wanted to do anyway, but the fact that it's standardized and promoted, and they network you and everything, it's just really fantastic. Amazing, amazing. Canada is uh, quite adept at uh, supporting their entrepreneurs, which a lot of people don't know. And yeah. congratulations on finding the one. I mean, every hire in an early stage company is so important. So that is amazing. Um, yeah. Tom, I want to really thank you for being on the podcast today. This has been amazing as I, I had very high expectations and you even surpassed them. So uh, thanks for taking the time. And, and I think my listeners will really appreciate, will really uh, enjoy listening to it and enjoy following uh, you and Unburden Care going forward. Tons of fun, Joe. Thanks so much. 
Thanks again for listening to the Epic Human Podcast. We really do appreciate you. If you enjoyed today's podcast, you can always like, subscribe, or even if you're extra special, you would leave us a nice review uh, on uh, on iTunes. That goes a long way for, for what we're trying to do here. If you're looking to follow us, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook at at Epic Human Pod. Uh, and we look forward to seeing you there, and we look forward to seeing you next time on the next episode of Epic Human Podcast.